to have your commander-in-chief get up in front of you uh, on live television like that and lie, uh, it's just unconscionable. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon, KYAQ Central Coast, Queso, Cottage Grove, KEPW, Eugene. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI. On Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio on WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle, Washington on KODX. Red Bluff, Redding, California on KFOI. Round Mountain, California, KKRN. And Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But I'm Angie Quero, and I am sitting in. I host In Deep with Angie Quero, heard on many of these fine stations and streams. Brad and Desi are taking some time for the holidays. Congress has punted. No moves on the shutdown until the new team gets sworn in January 3rd. It's not surprising they blew off half-hearted plans to convene. It's not like the GOP was set for a come-to-Jesus moment. They were going to confess that they despise and fear Donald Trump and his stupid wall and vote for sanity. Nah. And the Dems are keeping their powder dry until they have numbers in their favor. So everybody's gone home for now. This very sad sentence is down near the bottom of the Washington Post story on the surrender. Quote, The Office of Personnel Management sent out a Twitter post Thursday morning in which it shared advice and letter templates for federal workers to use negotiating for deferred rents and payment to other creditors. Real people, not just Democrats, Donnie, real people are suffering here. Also suffering the 14,000 GM workers seeing their jobs cut in plants across the country, five of those plants going idle altogether. Donald Trump was in Lordstown, Ohio, over the summer, promising jobs would return. Don't sell your house. Don't move. Jobs will come back. As it turns out, the Lordstown plant is one that General Motors is putting on ice. Now the Guardian newspaper has checked in with some of those workers, and some of them blame GM itself. Not Trump. But others, including GM, blame Donald Trump's tariffs, which has cost the company, it says, $1 billion, with a B, dollars. Worker Danny Adams told The Guardian, quote, if you're going to make promises, you've got to keep your promises. We're blue collar. You shake my hand. It's a promise. Lots of unhappy people there. McClatchy has a fascinating tidbit that could blow into something much larger. It reports that Robert Mueller has proof that Michael Cohen was in Prague, which he has publicly denied, inexplicably with a picture of a passport as though that proved anything. They say he was in Prague the same time the Steele dossier said he was. You know, the dossier. 
Philip Bump in The Washington Post has the best analysis I've seen today. He does warn that none of this is confirmed publicly, but if it is, he goes on, the contradiction between a clear allegation from the Steele dossier and the assertion that it wasn't true by Cohen and Trump helped drive the idea the dossier was broadly discredited. Pick out the Prague trip and nothing that follows could have happened. Put the Prague trip back into the mix. A lot of other parts of that allegation now become possible. What's more, it undermines the credibility of those who insisted the claim was completely without merit. And he explains again. He says, look at it another way. If the central conceit of the Steele's claim were accurate, that Cohen was working with agents of the Russian government directly to aid Trump's candidacy, it would be very hard to argue that no collusion took place. That likely requires Cohen's having been in Prague. This is our first significant indication, he says, that he might have been. Insert dun-dun-dun-dun right here. Things are heating up uncomfortably between Russia and England. A few days ago, London's Sunday Times published names and photos of eight reporters working for Sputnik's UK office. The Russian embassy warned it planned to respond in kind. Ofcom, that's Britain's media regulator, spanked Russian broadcast news arm RT for breaking its impartiality rules. Russia said it would investigate the BBC to see if it met Russian broadcasting fairness standards. The upshot of all this? Now a list of 44 BBC reporters in Russia, many of them Russian, is making the rounds online. Started on a Russian social media site, then got picked up by the news outlets. Some good news out of Ohio. A bill to ban abortion after six weeks has been smacked to the pavement. Yay. The legislature passed it. The governor vetoed it. The legislature couldn't gin up enough votes to override him. NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio Executive Director Kelly Copeland is warning this is not the end of it. It's never the end of it, is it? She says today's victory is small and brief. Anti-choice members of the Ohio House and Senate passed an equally egregious ban on the most common abortion method used after 12 weeks. This newest unconstitutional ban, she says, marks the 21st attack on abortion access and reproductive health care funding over the last eight years. And she points out the numbers that she has, the numbers that NARAL has, show that Ohioans support access to abortion care. So she said lawmakers must stop taking orders from a minority of vocal extremists who want to impose their narrow ideological agenda upon us all. Something more than pompous self-aggrandizement was wrong with Donald Trump's campaign swing through Iraq. As he has always done when greeting fans, he signed MAGA goodies, hats and such, for the troops. And it turns out that is problematic. Retired Rear Admiral John Kirby said on CNN, Trump may have put the troops in danger of disciplinary action. Because it puts them in an incredibly difficult position. They serve the whole nation. They, they take an oath to the Constitution, not to a political party. And while each of them individually are allowed to have political leanings, I mean, hell, we encourage them to vote. When they put that uniform on, and particularly when they wear that uniform in a deployed status, they're representing the whole country and they are supposed yeah. to be, they're expected to be apolitical. So when he, in, they, and frankly, there's regulations that prohibit military members from participating in uniform in yeah. campaign events, he basically turns these, these, mm. these gatherings into campaign events and so he puts them in a very difficult spot.
And some kudos here to Jim Sciotto, who actually used the L word, following up on another tack with Kirby. He also flat out lied to the troops on an issue that, that they would know better than anyone. He said that he gave them their first pay raise in 10 years and that he gave them a pay raise of 10%. Not true. They've been getting pay raises every year. Right. Um, and, and the most recent pay raise, nothing, nothing close to 10%. It was 2.6%. Um, how do forces react to that when they hear the commander-in-chief tell them a falsehood? I mean, do, do they laugh it off? Does it upset them on, on an issue such as this, which is important? This is how they support their families. You know, that's a, that's a great question, Jim. The, the military, and you know this, you've covered the military for a long time. It's not a monolith. And uh, there's 2.5 million men and women in the, in the active and the reserve component. All of them have their own sort of predilections about this and their own leanings. I suspect some of them just blow it off. I, know, I, I doubt any of them really believe it. They can see their pay stubs. They know exactly how much mm -hmm. they're making. Some probably just laugh it off. Some are probably deeply offended by it. I mean, mm -hmm. I, 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 you, you, to, to have your commander-in-chief get up in front yeah. of you uh, on live television like that and lie. Uh, it's just unconscionable. So let's go back to Trump and Iraq and the troops. With all these clips floating around, I grabbed up some audio to contrast holiday messages from Trump and President Barack Obama. Now, as you listen to these, it's about three minutes long. As you listen, I don't want to tell you what to think as you check out these few excerpts, but I'd like to tell you what to pay attention to if you care to. Pay attention to the syntax. Pay attention to the depth of the statements made. Listen to how the first person is used throughout. And related to that, how the troops being addressed are or aren't centered in the statements. It's kind of revealing. Listen. We came to Al-Assad to share our eternal gratitude for everything you do to keep America safe, strong, and free. America shouldn't be doing the fighting for every nation on Earth, not being reimbursed in many cases at all. If they want us to do the fighting, they also have to pay a price. And sometimes that's also a monetary price. So we're not the suckers of the world. We're no longer the suckers, folks. Some people say, well, maybe Somebody comes from the area and they hit us on our homeland. If that happens, they will suffer consequences over here like nobody has ever suffered before. So many families here you know, are serving uh, tirelessly. And it's not just those in uniform who serve, it's also uh, the spouses, the kids, you know, there are times where you're missing birthdays, missing soccer games, uh, making sacrifices. Uh, as we know, uh, you know, when you're deployed overseas, it's tough. And uh, even though we've been able to reduce the number of folks who are deployed in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, there's still folks over there every single day, and it's still dangerous, uh, as we saw uh, this past week. We had some outstanding brave men and women uh, who were killed. And so we never take for granted what all of you do for the American people. You help keep us free. You help, help keep us strong. And whatever service you're in, whatever branch, uh, we are extraordinarily grateful for everything that you do every single day. And uh, we hope you guys had a wonderful Christmas. 
The other reason I'm here today is to personally thank you and every service member throughout this region for the near elimination of the ISIS territorial caliphate in Iraq and in Syria. Two years ago, when I became president, they were a very dominant group. They were very dominant. Today, they're not so dominant anymore. Great job. I looked at a map, and two years ago, it was a lot of red all over that map. And now you have a couple little spots, and that's happening very quickly. That's happening very quickly. You'll be seeing that. I want to just say great job, and we'll be watching ISIS very closely. I know how hard that's been on a lot of you. You've been away from your families, many of you for multiple rotations. Uh, you've seen buddies of yours injured, and you remember those who've made the ultimate sacrifice. Uh, there are probably some people here who have seen children born and have been missing watching them grow up. Uh, there are many of you who have uh, listened to your spouse and, and, and the extraordinary sacrifices that they have to make uh, when you're gone. Those clips were gathered from CNN, The Guardian UK, The New York Post, and the BBC, and make from them what you will. Coming up next, one farmer takes a stand against big ag as he quits the organic dairy business. Coming up on the broadcast. Hi, this is Brad. My thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for a subscription to the Bradcast of any amount you like. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please grab a subscription at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. You're listening to the Bradcast. I'm Angie Claro in for Brad and Diz over these holidays. In 2012, a striking documentary tallied the lives lost in India as farmers tangled in hopeless debt after using Monsanto GMO corn committed suicide. When the film was made, the count was around 16 million over the past decade. It turns out something of the same thing, blessedly on a much smaller scale, is happening in the United States. Organic and dairy farmers are giving up on their lives' work. Maybe you saw a perspective piece in the Washington Post this week. Jim Goodman explained very forcefully why, after 40 years, he was selling his cows. Now, I followed that lead to cornucopia.org, where I found the writings of Mark Castell. He's a friend of Jim Goodman's. He's a fellow man of the land. And unfortunately, he's now something of a documentarian himself of what industrialized organic farming is doing to the small farmer. And that does include suicides and attempted suicides. Mark, I'm glad you had the time for us. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you. You know, I was trying to figure a way to, to get my hands around this in just a few minutes, and I think if we start here, it will it will stage this for us. When I, as a consumer, go out and look for good foods, good greens, good milk, I do look for an organic label. That's what that label means to me. I'm guessing that from your perspective, based on your experience, that organic label says very different things to you. Well, sadly... Uh, there are now two organic labels, and that was not the intent of Congress when they passed the Organic Foods Production Act of 1990. 
that was supposed to be to set a uniform standard to uh, both protect consumers from fraud and to protect ethical farmers from unfair competition. And uh, why should we be so surprised that when Washington got a hold of this, the lobbyists at the corporate agribusinesses have worked really hard to liberalize the working definition. So when you go to the store to shop for organic milk, you can't really tell whether it comes from a 5,000 or 15,000 cow factory dairy or whether it comes from somebody like Jim Goodman um, and if you hopefully will link to his essay that was in the Washington Post, yes, I his will. cows had na- yeah, his cows had names, not numbers. And I'd been in Jim's farm, uh, I've been in Jim's barn, and those cows love Jim. You know, these these family farms, these calves usually after weaning, um, uh, they're um, actually before weaning, they're bottle fed by the family. So there's this connection between the cows and the land where we regenerate their um, nutrients Mm -hmm. and the cows and the people. And, and so these, these, you know, they're not pets, but they're really family members and they're really bonded to the, to the family. And they, they love Jim. And um, after multiple generations of the Goodman family and many, many generations of the cows from that closed herd, they got sold off. Luckily, they went to a really nice farm. But these factory outfits, just like the conventional industrial dairies, they push their cows for abnormally high production that creates tremendous stress, and uh, it, quote, burns them out. So um, many times it's, it's, it's certainly common that they might only live two years before they get so uh, um, unhealthy that they're either uh, can't be cured or they're in such poor general condition that they can't breed again and if you can't have another calf you can't keep making milk so they're sent to the hamburger plant so for all of us that want our milk um, and other uh, organic products to come from animals that are respected this is really a stick in the eye and um before we talk about more bad news, let me just interject that the Cornucopia Institute um, maintains some scorecards for um, organic dairy brands, organic egg brands, for uh, soy brands for the vegans that might be listening. And, and so you can figure out which, which products come from those factory uh, farms that are sometimes referred to as concentration camps. Mm. And, um, and if you're, um, not eating dairy, consuming dairy, if you're doing soy, which of those soybeans are grown by North American legitimate organic farmers and which ones come from China or former Soviet bloc states that um, might be fraudulent. So we really need to vote for the kind of agriculture we want and vote to protect these heroes that are now, as you're suggesting, being uh, so financially stressed that they're either being forced off the land or um, or some are uh, either committing suicide or attempting suicide. There's uh, It's one of the greatest growth areas in agriculture today is, is um, support services for farmers, mental health services. And there's so much in there that I, that I want to pull apart. Let me go back for just a moment, though, to the labels. Since you said there are two standards now for what comprises organic, 
Can I, as a consumer, somehow suss that out by looking at the product, or do they just all say organic? They look the same to all of us. Right. That's the problem. It's figuratively two labels. They both have that USDA seal on it. Mm. But how do you know which egg in that carton, they both are brown eggs, which came from an operation that might have had a million birds on a, quote, farm, maybe 150,000 to 200,000 in a building that never go outside. Forget about the law saying that they have to go outside. They have to be able to exhibit their natural instinctive behaviors, which you can't do crammed into a building, uh, multi-tiered, floor-to-ceiling, wall-to-wall. Um, and so that's why you need these scorecards. And mm -hmm. they're mobile-friendly, so you can use them in the stores at cornucopia.org. But that really, unfortunately, is the only way you can tell. And I say unfortunate because... Uh, our intention was never to have um, more than one level of organics. You could go beyond organics. For instance, some of those egg producers uh, don't just let their birds outside, but they, um, they have pastured poultry. They actually rotate out into a field, moving a mobile chicken coop every day so they're on fresh grass. Wow. They're never living, in their, never living in their own excrement. Some dairy farmers go farther than the minimums, and uh, have 100% grass-fed, you know, very um, uh, intensive grazing, moving their cattle around. And uh, they should be rewarded. And, and our scorecard recognizes that. There's a um, five-cow and a five-egg rating. We don't use stars. We use cows and eggs. And Which I found really cute, beans. by the way. I like your little cows. <laughs> yeah, right. They're cute. They are. And, um, but at any rate, those are the people that go beyond the minimum legal requirements for being organic. And, but, the, you know, the good news is there are thousands of organic farmers that follow the spirit and letter of the law. And in every geographic location, you can find uh, really wonderful organic dairy products. The bad news is you've got to do your homework. It shouldn't be the case. Right. But um, you, other than that, you just won't know. And so there's an outfit called Aurora Dairy. They do the private label or store brand milk for Target and Walmart and Costco and, and a lot of the big grocery chains. And, and those are all factory farms and uh, factory farm milk. And some of their, there are some other suppliers other than Aurora. And you really need to decode that. And, and again, the good news is you can and the, the, the really high-quality products are, are readily available. You know, I, I have to tell you, and I, I will link to the scorecards in, uh, on our website at the Brad blog. I, I, was, I like to think of myself as a somewhat sophisticated consumer, and here are all these names of stuff that I buy, Earthbound and Double Rainbow, and names we all know and, and buy, and it is easy to fall into that trap and say, well, it sounds like they're doing it right, so they're probably doing it right. And it's, I, I really recommend that everybody follow that link and go over to, to the uh, scorecard. One thing I do want to ask you, Mark, is about the glut of milk that is on the market. Is that because, only because of all the people now calling themselves organic, or are there other things at work here? Well, I think there's um, a couple major factors. The largest is this uh, phony organic milk coming from cows that spend most of their time in buildings or feedlots. Uh, um, many of those facilities are in the desert or at least very uh, arid um, regions of the U.S., the desert southwest. 
I just give you this one factoid that that really is appalling to us here in Wisconsin. There are six dairies that are certified organic in the state of Texas. Only six. They produce about one and a half times more milk than 453 dairy farms in Wisconsin do. Wow. There are 453 organic dairy farms in Wisconsin, and some of them are quite small. The largest is 600 cows. That's really big. It happens that that is one of the best examples of a pasture dairy that I've ever been on. You might not call it the average family farm because they have employees, but but in terms of their dedication and management um, uh, expertise, they are really doing a wonderful job. So they're not all small, and six dairies in Texas, I wouldn't call them farms, produce one and a half times more milk. That's the milk that's finding its way un, with an organic label on it to many of these big box stores and major grocery chains. Let's talk about some of the political activism to get the situation fixed. I, I'm put in mind of the meat producers who, when there were videos coming out of how badly the animals were treated, their response was to try to make it the law that you can't film inside anymore, which is vastly besides the point. I'm wondering what kind of activism you see around organics and if is there anything the consumer can do besides just doing their homework as to what they're buying. Is there something over and above that? Yeah. Uh, in a short answer, no. And we've we've had such a hostile environment in Washington under both Democratic and Republican administrations. We didn't think it could get any worse than the Bush era. And then Obama came in and appointed um, people to run the program. And first of all, he appointed a USDA secretary, a former a Thomas Vilsack, a former lawyer and governor of um, the state of Iowa, who was one of the largest cheerleaders for genetically modified organisms. And he, in turn, um, had people running the National Organic Program at the USDA that were affiliated and friendly with the the um, industry lobby group, the Organic Trade Association. So they talked a good show, but it was a betrayal. Mm-hmm. And now that um, uh, Donald Trump has come in from president as president, he's uh, by far outdone um, uh, Mr. Obama. Now we've got a kind of a corporate um, agribusiness executive running the USDA and has um, overridden the National Organic Standards Board, the advisory panel, by allowing substances in organics, by um, scuttling a rule that was going to provide better animal welfare standards. So we really don't have a political avenue. That that voting with your pocketbook or wallet is absolutely the most powerful thing we can do. You know, big farm, small farm, big company, small company, they all want your money. Mm-hmm. And 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 so I've 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 come to say we've sued the USDA a number of times. There's a higher authority than the USDA secretary, a higher authority than the federal courts, and that's you. The consumer, the eater, who is going to decide how to invest that money. So I really, really encourage that extra homework. Not only do you get um, superior nutrition and flavor for your family, that's why we pay extra for organic food, Um, but you're helping these heroes um, survive on the land. And and if we don't stand with them, they won't be there very much longer. Well, there are more of us than there are of them. So I really thank you for taking some time with us, Mark.
You bet. I'm I'm happy to talk to you, and I I really appreciate your focus on what matters, and that's food and the health of our society. Mark Hestel is with the Cornucopia Institute. You'll find them online at cornucopia.org, and I'll put those links up at the Brad blog as well. Take care, Mark. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. Next on the broadcast, in contrast to the buffoon-in-chief, a conversation with an actual American hero. You're listening to the broadcast. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 2011. That was the day the National Labor Relations Board ruled that musicians in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, were employees, not independent contractors. Veteran musicians with the Lancaster Symphony Orchestra attempted to organize a union in 2007. They challenged the dictatorial methods by which musicians were treated. They wanted a contract to spell out the rules for hiring, firing, auditioning, grievance procedures, and more. When it came time to sign union cards, the symphony opposed the election, claiming the musicians were independent contractors. The musicians filed with the regional labor board. After receiving an unfavorable ruling, they turned to the national offices in Washington, D.C. There, the board utilized the common law agency test to determine the musician's status. These questions are to discern how much control workers have over the way they work, whether they are highly skilled, how they're paid, and if they provide their own tools, or in this case, instruments. When more answers tilt toward yes, workers are considered independent contractors. The NLRB determined that though these workers are paid on a 1099 instead of a W-2 form, they are employees because of their working conditions. They concluded that orchestral management exerted a great deal of control. Management determined musicians' dress, their posture and behavior before, during, and after rehearsals and concerts. Management also imposed discipline and firing. Musicians voted to join the Greater Lancaster Federation of Musicians the next spring, but their victory was soon undercut by management's refusal to negotiate a first contract. The musicians filed an unfair labor practice and won. The symphony took the case to a federal appeals court, which settled in the union's favor in the spring of 2016. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Quero in for Brad and Desi today. They are on the road for the holidays. So a few minutes ago, I mentioned the criticisms of Donald Trump, not just from me, but from others, for the hypocrisy of standing before American troops treating them as props while he whined about Washington and Democrats and the shutdown, lying to them about their pay raises, donning a military jacket which hung just about four feet above his Vietnam-avoiding bone spurs, exposing, apparently, the faces and location of Navy SEALs whose lives depend on stealth. Just coincidentally, over at my own show, which is In Deep, we're right now rolling out the best of the archive for our holiday shows. And... There it was. 
an interview with an actual Navy SEAL who has truly suffered badly because of his real bravery, his real patriotism, and who has persevered through pain and near-suicidal depression to help everyone he can. This is what Trump could only dream of being. James Hatch was part of a team in Afghanistan trying to rescue military deserter Bo Bergdahl from the Taliban. Hatch's leg was shattered by gunfire. He watched a service dog shot to death in front of him. He has dedicated his life since then to Spike's canine fund. Spike was his own combat dog who died in his arms. It helps to fund retired police and combat dogs. Again, compared to Trump. Here's part of my conversation with James Hatch on the release of his book, Touching the Dragon and Other Techniques for Surviving Life's Wars. The rescue mission for you after you were shot, Oof. everybody, obviously everybody's going to take part. Obviously everybody's going to do your best. But in the telling of the story, it's just, it's just amazing how thoroughly everybody came through for you. Yeah. And I didn't see it that way initially. I saw it as a, we, we failed the mission because I got shot. But then after, you know, after I get the drugs out of my system and I work out some of the things that I need to work out so that I can get the proper, you know, help and I start going through it. Yeah. Heck yeah. People hung it out. The helicopter crew that flew when we started on that mission, it was brutal. Mm -hmm. I can't believe none of the helicopters were shot down. It was heavy duty. And those guys turned around, you know, 25 minutes later and came in the exact, the exact same area and got me. And I saw them getting shot at while they were landing to pick me up, you know, so, and I've actually got to speak to those guys, like to their whole unit. And, uh, that was really neat. It was very emotional. Mm -hmm. Uh, but look here, I get shot, right? So I'm in the air and I, and things slow down and I'm saying to myself, don't scream, don't scream, don't scream. And then wham, I hit the ground. Wah! And I scream and I'm probably, uh, from I'm back from me to the ladder away from the guys that were shooting at us. And, you know, the dog found him. The reason we found them is they shot the dog. Remco was his name. So I'm shooting the guy who shot the dog, and then his buddy sprays and hits me. I'm in the air. <laughs> I hit the ground. <laughs> Screaming. The two guys that are with me, one of whom just saw his dog get killed, they take care of it. The guy threw, he, he shot me spraying wildly with his gun like they always do. They suck. I hate it when people say, oh, the, you know, these cunning fighters, they, they're horrible. They panic. They don't have any muzzle discipline. They shoot their own people all the time. It, they're really bad. So he expends all of his ammunition. Now all he's got left are grenades. And he starts just throwing grenades wildly. And I could hear him going off and in between my screams. The guys are taking care of him. I'm screaming. At some point, I hit the button on my radio so the guys could hear me screaming. At that point, I was worse than useless. I was a hazard because if you're a bad guy, all you got to do is point your gun in the direction of the guy screaming and just pull the trigger, you know. So the, my buddies came over and, you know, they, they helped me. And then a couple of the guys, the two main characters that I talk about predominantly, the fly fisherman and the mechanic, they both had to cover open ground to get to me. And the fly fisherman actually had to shoot some people to get to me, which is a pretty big deal. I mean, it's actually a really big deal. As you were starting to recover... Once, once you got into, first, obviously, the critical repairs, and then over time, as you started going into rehab, had some pretty heavy-duty drugs that you were doing. Later on, you were drinking. And at the bottom rung of all this, your wife finds you with a gun in your mouth. Yeah, I was standing out by the garbage cans because I didn't want to mess up the house. I was 
I just didn't, I honestly did not feel as if I had any reason to be alive anymore. And that I was actually kind of a drain on everything. Mm. I really in my heart believed it. And I just didn't, and look, I know how to use a gun. If I don't wanted to be dead, I would have been dead. But it was just a really bad, kind of a pathetic cry for help. And how long was that at from the time you got shot to that moment? How, what time? I was hurt in 2009, July of 2009. And this was right around this time of year, 2010. Mm. Not quite a year. So you were at what point in your physical recovery? What were you able to do by that uh, point? I, could, I was not on crutches. I still had a cane. Uh, I wasn't moving as good as I am now, but I was getting around okay. Mm-hmm. But I was, it wasn't the physical stuff that was difficult. It was the, all the stuff in my backpack. And then being separated from my unit, I could no longer, you know, that's, um, one could argue that men are worse at this than women, but we identify, I think, uh, quite a bit with our vocation. Mm. And so that was me. That was who I was. And I was no longer that. And I didn't know what I, you know, I just didn't know what I could do or what I could contribute. And, you know, look, when I first joined the SEAL teams, this guy said to me, you're either an asset or a liability in life. You're either bringing something to your family, to your class, to your group, to your team, to your community, or you're taking away. If you're not actively trying to contribute, then you're causing problems. And so what he didn't say, because he didn't know, is that sometimes in life you can be a liability, and it's not because of anything you did. Mm -hmm. It's just because of the circumstances that unfolded in your life. So uh, my friends came in and they helped me realize that I had the ability to be an asset again. But I wouldn't have believed it had they not been there. And at the end of the day, people say, was there one thing that really, no, it was a collection of things. But at the end of it, people kept showing up. Your wife rocked through all this. Oh, she's a, yes. And she reminds me quite often. So, <laughs> so which is great. Uh, she can't remember the PIN number on her ATM card, but she can tell you about all of the things that I, yeah, for sure. Yeah, she is. She's tough. Very tough. After... All the dust had settled, and you talked to her. How accurate was your perception of what she was going through at the time? Or was there no room in your brain for that? There was no room. I think that's something that uh, I can say as a professional depression patient. Depression is super selfish. And I don't think you have the ability to honest. I mean, I was so obsessed with myself and what a pathetic mess I was and how I could no longer do the things that I did. And I've done all these bad things. And you know, throw the drugs and then wash them down with booze and it just exacerbates the whole thing. And mm. depression is very selfish. And if you realize that while you're depressed, it just makes it worse. Oh, oh great. Right. Now it's I'm selfish too. Nice little, nice little circle <sighs> of self crisis. It's just horrible. So what broke through that? You know, my friends, mm-hmm. the suicide thing, police came to my home and I thought, okay, good. I like violence and I don't have the ability to do it myself, but I'll let hope these guys show up and try to roll a tough guy on me. And, and, I, and I, my wife told me that she had mentioned, you know, my background. And these two young guys show up. And I remember that day there had been a shooting in a park. I live in Norfolk, Virginia. There had been a shooting in a park not far from our home. So I thought, okay, these guys are probably wired up. They came over. They call it verbal judo. I didn't know that's what they call it. It's a little secret. Next thing I know, we're talking about, baseball or something, you know, and then my buddies are there and they put me in a car and take me to the hospital. Yeah, I came to a head pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And people from those officers who were strangers, complete strangers, and they had a couple of different things they could have, a couple of ways they could have approached that situation. And because of them, and because like, never underestimate your ability to change the trajectory of somebody's life, honestly, mm-hmm. because I'm sitting here today because those guys made the choices that they did. 
and then, you know, continue on with the line of people who interjected themselves into my life. And, and uh, you know, here we are. You also ran into some people who had overcome injuries that, that you compare to, okay, there's what you went through, and then there's the guy who got shot 27 times. Right. Tell us about him. Tough guy. I'm waiting for his. I'm waiting for his book to come out. <laughs> I had to get mine out first. I only got shot once. <laughs> so, yeah, people joke. You know, Navy SEALs books. It's true. I'm the only Navy SEAL that didn't shoot Bin Laden, but I'm not going to be the only one that didn't write a book. I just didn't want to use a SEAL thing. <laughs> but you saw him, and then you saw when you were in a plane being transported. You saw guys who were breathing yeah. through a tube and no faces left. But here's the thing: the the person that really affected me. Those guys were all volunteers, and we all put ourselves into that. But I was fortunate in so far as I was sent to a civilian facility. The military, I was in the military facility for a while. They were trying to figure out what to do with me, and they they contacted some of the folks in D.C. and said, hey, man, there's those people that had some experience with this other civilian hospital. And I was mixed in with civilians. I was I remember in a group therapy, it was half men, half women, and this woman talking about how she was sexually assaulted by two of her uncles on Christmas Eve in front of her father. And she was quite a bit younger than me. And I remember looking at her and the way she was crying when she said it, but she looked like Mike Tyson to me. Like she was fighting, like she was here. She was, I mean, when you're in a mental hospital, you've kind of reached a point where there's really no reason to bullshit anybody anymore. <laughs> the conversations in there are great. I think we should all go there for like a month <laughs> because there's no fluffy bullshit. It's, <laughs> Hey, man, I'm here because I did this, you know, whatever. She was in there swinging, man. And I, I remember walking back to my little place I stayed, the little room I stayed in, thinking to myself, okay, listen, man, you got shot in the leg on a mission that you wanted to do with people that you loved, doing something that you wanted to do your whole life. You knew it was an opportunity. There was an opportunity for that every night when you went out. This girl was 11 years old on Christmas Eve. So what, what does she think of you? Hey, Merry Christmas. You know, like what? And she was still in there swinging, man. Mm -hmm. And that just had an effect on me. And I, and then I started thinking about the other people that I ran into, um, people who revealed uh, their sexuality to their families and then were disowned. I can't even imagine what that would be like. And it's, it's a dangerous little game there, though, comparing your troubles to other people's troubles. But it's also, I think, a very smart thing to occasionally, when you get your mind free of all the booze and the drugs and... It's a, it's a good thing to reflect a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think that was a gift for me. In the veteran world, in the military, in the veterans world, there's a, I think there's a huge problem with just flat out lying about things. Like you, you go to the VA hospital and there, nobody in there was a cook or a mechanic. Everybody was a Navy SEAL special operations ranger, recon, some, you know, like, come on. So that's not a good place to start your mental health you know, marathon at, right? Yeah. You know, you want to be somewhere where nobody really cares about what you did. It's what are you doing now? That's the, so I was very fortunate. And you know what? Through that whole process, the same guys that covered ground or stopped me from bleeding to death the night that I got hurt, those guys were there. The, the fly fisherman who had to shoot people to get to me the night that I was wounded, he flew with me to that civilian facility. And he, I was going to leave. The lady was going through my bag, and I said, you know, I'm not, I'm not doing this. I'm going to run. He said, well, you can't really run anymore. What an asshole. He didn't have to say that. <laughs> I mean, he was right. But he didn't have to say it like that, you know. <laughs> and then he said, hey, you got you to do this. You got to do this for you. You got to do it for your family, and you got to do it for the rest of us that are coming. And he was right. 
Now, because I'm the guy, I call it wearing my ass for a hat. I don't, I don't talk about it. I don't care. People know that I can't judge them. Yeah. And so they'll come to me. And I'm not a psychologist. I'm, I have a master's degree in being a patient. <laughs> so I can help them, you know, find where they need to go. But I like that role. And, you know, talk about a mission, right? That's one of them. There's a story parallel to yours, Gabby Gifford, who you befriended before. I mean, obviously, she was very effective and well-known and well-liked in her governmental political life, but a lot of us didn't hear of her until she, too, was shot. Right. But you knew her before that. I did. Yeah, and you watched her recover from that. <sighs> yeah, talk about an example. If you could tell the story about how she carried your thanks with her to tell your friends how grateful you yeah, were. Yeah, so... I'd met her the year previous. So I met her in 2008. She came on a congressional delegation, and nobody was happy to see them because we don't wear uniforms when we're over there, you know. But when the when the congressional delegation shows up, you got to put your uniform on and you got to, you know, act like you care about what you look like. And it was just a waste of our time to me. I was definitely not enthusiastic. She came in, and she's just this bright-eyed, you know, physically diminutive individual but you can just see her spirit like boom just huge she was the only woman and she asked the best questions you know some of the guys are like how are you doing fellas you know yeah whatever yeah. and <laughs> and she said what do you guys need what's what's going on what are you what are the trends that you're seeing? i mean she was really super smart and i so at the end of it i said hey you want you should we train out in your district i asked her where her district was because i didn't know and i said we do some training out there we jump out there when we get back, you want to go jump? And she said, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, sure she does. She gave me a card. We get home. I called her. She answered her phone. We decided to meet. We met at this little um, deli for breakfast. She shows up wearing a jeans and a sweatshirt, no posse. I thought, okay, she's got the congressional pot, no posse. Just by herself. We went jumping. She was great. We got out in the air, boom, opened the parachute. I turned the parachute to look so she could see her district. It's pretty. She said, yeah, it's really beautiful. We land safely, thank God. Because <laughs> she was strapped to me and it was my, you know. And uh, she went to work. It was on a Saturday. She thanked everybody and then she went to work. Fast forward, that was a few months before I got hurt. So I get hurt. Obviously, she works in D.C. part of the time. So I was in the hospital in D.C. Word got to her. She came to the hospital to see me. We chatted for a bit. I was pretty drugged up, but she said, hey, I'm going to go back over there. I'm probably going to run into your guys. I said, okay, my, my crew is in this particular spot, and these guys, these three guys saved my life, four guys saved my life. And she didn't have anything to write with. She just listened to me. So fast forward about a week, she flew over at night, got off the airplane, this little base, this little runway. Everybody's out there. She walks past all the big wigs, all the generals, <laughs> the colonels. She walks past all of them. Walks over to my crew. We all look the same, you know, beards and disheveled. And she said, who's so-and-so? And he raises, you know, he doesn't know what the hell's going on. She runs over and gives him a hug. Who's so-and-so? Raises his hand. Guys are like, what the hell's going on? And then she, after she'd given everybody the hug, she said, hey, thanks for saving Jimmy. So that was pretty cool. Fast forward, she uh, was January of 2011. Boom, I see on television, I see the images. And I and then I called my buddies out there, and they said, hey, she's dead. And I was crushed. Then the word got out that she wasn't dead, <clears throat> but she'd been shot in the head right here from me to you. 
And I was, I was crushed. And her husband, Captain Kelly, who's the space shuttle commander, he sent me a message after they moved her to Houston, me and another SEAL, uh, he asked us if we'd come see her. So we went down to Houston and I was just amazed. Uh, I, str I got shot in the leg and I was, you know, I struggled. Didn't have a good attitude. Here she was. Half of her skull was off. So she had to wear a bicycle helmet when she got out of bed. She couldn't move her right side. They had to make her rest. Like she just wanted to, she's a special person, man. Mm -hmm. Anybody wants an example of a hero, I'd, I'd point at Gabby for sure. And you guys both found relief and joy in going up and jumping again. Yeah. <laughs> she's just crazy as hell. <laughs> That's how she wanted the anniversary, you know, several years after she said, I want on the anniversary of my getting shot, I want to go skydiving again. So I can't, because I got shot in the leg, I can't strap people to me anymore and jump out. So I just had a friend that I knew was really good. And Mark, her husband, said, okay. Uh, and then I jumped out of the plane with them and we got to hold hands in the air and it was really cool. She's an amazing, I don't think she's done. She still struggles to talk. It was interesting. I went to the chris the christening of the ship that was you know named after her, and she could just sit there. I mean, nobody would fault her. Nobody would blame her for just sitting there and you know taking it all in. She gets up and she tries to talk. She can't move her right side still, so she's gesturing and she she has a three by five card and it takes her a couple of weeks to. She knows. She understands. She could sit here and understand exactly what everybody's saying, but she. Her, the ability to communicate, which was one of her gifts, clearly, is not there. And so she's still, like one of my gifts was running. Well, I'm not out trying to run anymore, you know what I mean? She still gets up there in front of people and throws it out, man. Mm -hmm. And she knows she can make a mistake. She doesn't care. She's, she's an amazing, again, anybody needs to find a hero, I'd point, her, point him in her direction. Let's talk about Spike. Because oh. uh, <laughs> we haven't cried yet. Let's... We haven't cried yet. <laughs> well, the dog that everyone learned about, you know, yeah. in, in the trial was Remco, who, right. you mm -hmm. know, is, is a hero story in his own tale. But Spike was a really difficult manifestation of how wrong things can go. Oof. So tell us, Indeed. tell us about how you two got together in the first place. So I had written a paper uh, to the leadership I think in the late 90s, about how we, we could probably benefit from incorporating dogs. I was the kid who read Old Yeller, Where the Red Fern Grows, Call of the Wild. Like, that was my thing, you know, as a kid, right? So, and it was easy to see, especially, you know, in the law enforcement community, how the dogs can help. You know, their senses are great, uh, their speed, uh, their courage. Those things are really kind of force multipliers, is the word I would use, right? So, that dog can do the things that five guys could do. So I thought, you know, hey, these are ways in which we can incorporate the canines to help us in our business. And this is before the war on terror and all of that. So then the war starts. Uh, I moved around a couple different units and then went back and they said, hey, we're, we're going to do the dog thing. Would you like to volunteer for it? And I said, heck yeah. So we couldn't get the military dogs that were presently being, or at that time being used, we couldn't get dogs that would do the things that we needed him to do, um, you know, jump out of airplanes or, uh, you know, jump out of boats and swim with us, um, be around a lot of gunfire, uh, just some of the harsh environmentals that we had. So mm -hmm. we went to Holland and Holland, the Netherlands and Germany, and now a little bit more the Czech Republic. 
those are the pro predominant um, dog breeding areas in the world for the type of stuff that we need to do. So we went over there. I didn't go on this trip. Um, a trainer picked Spike, brought him home. They decided they were going to match me up with him. I was scared to death. So I went and I bought, I remember driving to work that day. I stopped at 7-Eleven and got a bunch of Slim Jims. <laughs> and I'm like, well, you know, this is probably, this will work. So sure enough, I go to meet him and he's looking at me, you know, he, he was small for those stuff. He was about 62 pounds and I said, hey, Spike, I gave him a Slim Jim. <laughs> he snatched it and he looked at me and we got to be friends after that. So, but we spent every minute together. Like I, we would run in the morning on the beach and then come back and get in the shower and guys are looking at me, you know, it's a big shower with all the guys in there and I'm holding him up, washing his belly, you know. <laughs> we just did everything together, you know. He came home with me, my wife, learned the Dutch commands. He was just part of our family, you know. Uh, so we did a deployment to Iraq in 2005 and then again in 2006 and 2006 is the one where he was killed. He was, I sent him to bite a guy and he bit the guy and the guy was big, bigger than me. He fell on the ground, was fighting him. <clears throat> so I put some rounds into the guy and one of the rounds went through and killed Spike. So I remember the guy rolled off and Spike was kind of staggering and I, you know, your night vision, you're looking kind of through toilet paper tubes, small toilet paper tubes. And I saw him staggering, and he turned, and he came back, and was trying to re-engage the guy, but he was wobbling. And I said to my buddy, man, I think, I, I think that guy broke his leg. He said, no, man, he's really hurt. So I got to him. We took care of the guy, and I got to him. I threw him on my shoulder. I started running back to the, you know, where, where we had started, where the medics were. And I felt him just stop breathing. It was horrible. But, <clears throat> you know, uh, in life, I think we sometimes hit these things that are significant and we don't know how to deal with them. So we kind of, I call it putting them in my backpack. So it was just one of the things that I threw in my backpack and, hey, I had to go to work. I had to be dialed in. I had to, so I cried. I called, I remember calling my wife. It was Christmas Eve. I remember calling her and saying, hey, man, Spike died. And it was horrible. Uh, it was horrible. But I had to go back to work. Mm -hmm. And so I just put it in my backpack. And I continued to do that over the years, you know, until the point where I didn't have a choice anymore and the backpack fell open and I was laying there looking at the ceiling. That was a significant, um, that was a very difficult thing. But it turned out, because I got such good help, it's kind of the thing that motivates me to do what I'm doing now. And that's, that's, uh, that's the best thing that I could do. You talked about your experience at the Death Star. Yeah. Just the difference between the people who are out there fighting a war and the people who are watching it as though it's a video game. Can you tell us about that experience? I think there's a certain segment of the military that's a self-licking lollipop, right? So if you—and uh, no, these are good Americans who are away from their families, and they go overseas to do what they can to contribute, right? But when you're building Burger Kings and Subway sandwich places and Pizza Huts on the base— you got to ask yourself. I mean, I did. I'm like, what are we really doing? Like, what is this really all about? So the Death Star was really hard for me because everybody was well coiffed, you know, their hair and their shaves. And they were drinking lattes that had been made within the last 30 minutes. And it was surreal to me. And so, you know, you have these big screen televisions and in the center of this theater, there's, you know, the head person sits there. And then your importance in the Death Star is based on your... Uh, proximity to the guy in charge in this case, you know, so there's tiered seating and it was, it was, it was surreal. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad I didn't, I'm glad that's not where I spent my time. You know, I think I mentioned it in the book where while we were in the Death Star in this particular time, it's the night that Bergdahl actually 
left and we'd just gotten the first reports of it. We were there for something else entirely. And they handed, they handed us a piece of paper, we're reading about it. But as that was going on, they were watching some missions on the screens and, you know, gunships dropping bombs on these guys in a ditch. And, these, you know, you can see the bodies just getting blown. People are high-fiving and I'm like, what? I have more in common with those guys that just got blown up than I do with all this, you know? Mm -hmm. So, but at the end of the day, those people are, that's the way that they could feel close to it. Right. So they're deployed. They're away from their families and this place get, it gets rocketed and people still get hurt, even though they never leave that base, you know, there's still a chance for bad things to happen there. But that was the way that they were attached to the, you know, the effort, so to speak. They weren't bad people. None mm -hmm. of those people were bad people. They were all great Americans. But it was so surreal to me. And look, the reason we were effective is because we had people like that who were gathering intel and bringing it all into one spot and channeling it to us in a way that we could digest quickly and, and be effective. So not only were they good Americans, but they were working hard to help me. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit arrogant on my part to give them a hard time, but it's still kind of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. just it's just crazy. And I'm sure those people would look at me and go, why doesn't that guy run a razor across his face? You know, so we all have our thing. Someone in the audience is asking about something, in fact, you touched on in the book. Is it fair to consider the U.S. military a peacekeeping force? And I think it's, it's a good time to go into your simple proposition about what we ought to be doing in countries that need our help. Yeah, I, you know, I have a very quick litmus test. Uh, I, I personally think, you know, nation building is a very flawed idea, especially in cultures that have been around for thousands and thousands of years. I think it's a bit arrogant for us to go, to go into these countries and tell them how to run things. Here's a good example. So when the first uh, elections took place in Afghanistan, there was a reporter there from ABC and she was talking to, there were a group of, and I call them Bedouins, but it's not the proper name for the people in Afghanistan that, that, that kind of rove with their sheep from place to place. But this this guy was the tribal elder for that group. So he's basically the mayor of this crew of Bedouins, right? And she said, well, you know, who do you think your people are going to are gonna vote for in the election? And he said, he looked at her incredulous. He said, they're going to vote for who I tell them to vote for, right? <laughs> like, that's how they roll. Right, right. So what do you, I mean, it didn't, it, like, he was confused that she would ask that. Like, you idiot, they're going to vote for who I tell them, you know. I think that's a really good example. Uh uh, peacekeeping, that's a slippery slope, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody goes in the military or goes overseas to think that they're just going to destroy things and rape and pillage. You know, I don't think that's... But I think we can kind of stumble over ourselves. And I think the nation-building thing, that's exactly what happened. We've spent trillions and bodies, Americans, mostly other people's kids. And I say that somewhat cynically because most of the people who <clears throat> make the decisions about those deployments don't have children that are going to go fight. So it's easier, mm -hmm. um, I think. Uh, here's my litmus test, in the Middle East in particular. <clears throat> Find the guys whose daughters are going to school. Give them money. Give them weapons. Help them out. Don't build big bases. Don't put this big footprint. The kids that are fighting in Afghanistan right now, they don't know what the hell 9-11 was. Mm -hmm. They don't know what that is. They just see people rolling through town that don't look like them and making them do things that that doesn't make sense to them. So I don't think we should have this big footprint there. And I don't think we should try to convince people to live the way we think they should live. I think it's a bit arrogant on our part. And that is what a real hero sounds like. One of the things I admired so much meeting James Hatch that evening was his lack of patience with BS. He's been through it all. 
He just doesn't have time for anything but straight out truth now, reality. Now, I'm not putting words in his mouth. I don't know anything about his politics, but I can't help but wonder what he would have to say about the White House occupant's performance in front of his colleagues, James' colleagues. I really, I have to wonder. If I have time, I'll bring you more of our conversation in our next show. That all depends on the news flow, so we will find out together on the next broadcast. Until then, good luck, world.